All right. Let's all pray. God, we are ready to hear your word. We pray that you'd be glorified, that you would speak to us as individuals, speak to us as a church. God, uh, exalt yourself in our midst right now, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> all right, so Wednesday nights, we've said this, what is this, 51st week, give or take? Uh, we're going through the Bible in a year. We're getting in very much the home stretch, right? Uh, next week, we'll go ahead and finish it up, even though we'll have like two days left, uh, whatever. But um, so this week, you know, if, if you're reading along with us, we covered just an amazing portion of scripture, right? We covered the pastoral epistles, Paul's letters to Titus and Timothy. We covered the book of Hebrews. We covered the book of James. And uh, there's just so much in each one of those books, and they're each so powerful. And next week is going to be no different. We're going to cover First and Second Peter. First um, Peter is First and Second Peter are probably just two of the best books in the Bible. There's just so much there. Peter has so much richness. Um, you get First, Second, and Third John. We're going to have Jude, which is just it's short, but do not let its length deceive you. Jude is packed full, and then you've got Revelation. And Revelation, um, as we're just Coming to Revelation, you know, if you have any questions about it or whatever, just a good thing to keep in the back of your mind is whenever the Bible gives us prophecy, um, in every instance that I can think of, unless it specifies this is a metaphor, which it does in a couple spots, unless it specifies that, every place where we've seen Scripture fulfilled, seen prophecy fulfilled, we've seen it fulfilled very literally. Okay, we've seen that with the birth of Christ. We've seen that even in our own lifetimes, well, some of our lifetimes, um, with things like the rebirth of the nation of Israel and the Lord gathering people from, gathering the Israelites from all over the world. We've seen things like the prophecies in Daniel, that at the end of time, people will travel everywhere and knowledge will increase. Okay, those are things that are happening very literally in our world. And so as you're going through Revelation, um, it can be tempting to overthink it, Right? But the book of Revelation says at the beginning, there's a blessing promised to everybody who reads it. And so read it, even if you feel like, I don't understand it, the Lord is going to bless you for it. All right? Um, but along the way, just if, you know, if Scripture interprets Scripture, it's very reasonable to look at Revelation and assume there's a very high probability this is going to be fulfilled literally. Um, because everywhere else where we've seen Scripture fulfilled, it's all, unless it's specified otherwise, it's almost always literal. And so, just I say that just going into it, you know, Revelation can feel really intimidating, but it can also be very exciting to read. Um, it's a pretty intense book, okay? But tonight, um, we're not in Revelation. We're covering what we read this week. And so I thought it'd be helpful just to sort of look at Hebrews. Um, and we're not going to go through the whole thing. Hebrews is a dense book, all right? And even the author of Hebrews himself says, this book is like chewing on meat, right? And if you have a hard time with it, uh, you're very much not alone, okay? Hebrews is a, it's a, it's kind of a heady book, okay? Nobody knows for sure who wrote it. Some people swear that the Apostle Paul wrote it. Some people swear that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, wrote it. Some people think that Apollos, who's one of the other guys referenced in the New Testament, wrote it. Short answer is nobody knows, nobody cares. Everybody has very good arguments for why they think their case is right. And that's really all you need to know. Whoever it was, was very articulate. 
was very well versed in the Old Testament scriptures, and they set out with a very simple goal, and that was to explain to their audience that Jesus was sufficient as the Messiah, and that Jesus was qualified to fulfill and complete the law. Because it's an important thing to understand, and I think sometimes we, we lose sight of it a little bit in Christianity because we've had 2,000 years of, of thinking along these lines. But is Jesus really enough to fulfill the law? Right? Are Christians just picking and choosing what they want to follow out of the Old Testament? Is, have we turned the Word of God into a buffet line where we just take what we want and leave the rest? And that's an accusation that's leveled to Christians sometimes, um, you know, particularly by the Jewish people. They can say, hey, you guys are just, you know, you're just taking what you like and leaving the rest. And so, so what is the answer? And, and did Jesus have the qualifications to really... Um, to really bring us to that point. And so that's what Hebrews sets out to answer, to examine, okay? And it examines it very thoroughly and very conclusively. But overall, we're going to just um, kind of do some quick summary fashion stuff, and then we'll get into reading a little bit in, in a bit. But chapters 1 through 4 are sort of the introduction of Hebrews. Um, he's sort of talking about Jesus and getting, getting into where he's going and talking about you know, Jesus bringing us into rest and taking us out of the law and out of all the need to obey all the rules, okay? But chapter 5, 6, and 7, he starts to shift gears a little bit to really articulate his argument. And so he's arguing that Jesus is the fullness of the law, that Jesus completes the law. And so how is he going about doing that? Well, he says Jesus is our king and our priest. And if you were a Jewish person, who was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, you'd say that's impossible. You can't be a king and a priest because there's 12 tribes of Israel. All the kings have to come from the line of Judah. All the priests have to come from the line of Levi. And so what he's going to start doing is he's, he's looking at what's the Bible say about the priesthood overall. And so he goes back and he references Psalm 110, which is a prophecy um, by David where the Lord is giving a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah. And he says, you're going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is, um, this can feel a little bit like minutia, but it's really important. Okay, so again, we said at the beginning, Hebrews is kind of a dense book. So stick with me. Okay, we're going to try and break it down as simply as we can. But overall, what he's saying is, in what David prophesied, in Psalm 110, is the Messiah is going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews takes that, and he says, okay, let's examine that just a little bit, and what does that mean? So if you can think back in your mind to the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, there's this character named Melchizedek who shows up on the scene very briefly, and he comes to meet Abraham after Abraham had just fought a battle. Abraham gives him a tithe. Melchizedek gives him bread and wine, um, or you could say, if you're looking at it from a messianic standpoint, Melchizedek gives him communion, all right? And then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And so Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a king and a priest. Uh, he's the king of Salem, which would eventually be renamed Jerusalem, all right? Um, his name means the king of righteousness. And so, but there's not a lot about this guy. But the Lord prophesied through David that the Messiah would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews, in these few chapters, he's going to keep referencing that psalm. But basically what he's saying is this. Um, in a nutshell, the Levitical priesthood, 
the, you know, all the law and all the rules for the priest came after Abraham, right? Because you had Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob and then his 12 sons. And then after that, the descendants of Levi were chosen as the priest, okay? So the law came after Abraham. So everybody who came from Abraham, and especially in an, in an Eastern culture, in a Middle Eastern context, you're never greater than your ancestors, okay? You never are. So, so this guy's making this case, Levi is not greater than Abraham, all right? And Abraham would have been Levi's great-grandfather, so according to all the rules of patriarchy, all the rules of honor, uh, Levi is... Uh, is under Abraham in terms of authority and power and honor, all right? So, basically, where he's going with this is he says, okay, Abraham recognized the priesthood of Melchizedek. So, Levi, in essence, is still, he's, he isn't born yet when this happens, but he's within Abraham, right? He is yet to come from Abraham. So, Levi is actually part of, in a sense, Abraham, Levi, through Abraham, is giving honor to Melchizedek, just in the same way that the Bible could say, in some ways, we all sinned in the Garden of Eden with Adam, because we were all in Adam, is how the scripture describes it, okay? So, and, and so, basically, in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, when the, where the Lord says the Messiah will be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, there has to arise a greater priesthood. Okay, so basically where the author of Hebrews is going is he's saying, if you're thinking Jesus can't be the priest because he's not descended from Levi, you're thinking in terms of the secondary priesthood. You're not thinking in terms of the greatest priesthood. Okay, so that's where he's going with this. Um, And he also ties it in with this idea that in the prophecy, it says you're a priest forever. And he makes this point that none of the priests from Levi are ever a priest forever. Why? Because they all died right? By definition, if you die and stay dead, doing anything forever is not really on, on your radar, right? So, um, so in chapter 7, and I'm just going to read it briefly. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But in verse 23, he, uh, down through the end of the chapter, he says, the former priest on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he t- continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He's saying none of the other priests existed forever, right? They kept dying off. That's why there's so many of them. So if there's going to be one priest forever, it's going to have to be somebody who can exist on an eternal level. Therefore, verse 25, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So pay attention to what he's going to say here next. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, that's referencing that prophecy, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So he's going with this idea of Jesus being a priest forever. And he says, the old priest couldn't be priest forever. Why? Because they were sinners. They were weak. And they couldn't, as a result, bring you before the presence of God forever. 
because they were sinners and they were weak. They had to always offer a sacrifice for themselves first before they could ever offer a sacrifice for you, right? There always had to be these layers and these barriers to separate you from the holiness of God. And so nobody could exist forever. So nobody in the Levitical line could fulfill this prophecy. So Jesus is the only one who can fulfill this prophecy by superseding the priesthood of the Levites and becoming a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, okay? So that's where he's going. And I, I know that's a little bit, I don't know, that can feel a little like, okay, really, right? But I want us to get that down because we need to then move on and see where does Hebrews go? Where does it continue? So that's kind of five, six, and seven. Eight, nine, and 10, the author moves on from explaining how Jesus completes the priesthood to explaining how Jesus completes the law, all right? He says, not only is Jesus a priest forever, but Jesus also fulfills the law. Jesus removes our need to obey the law because he references, you know, the law is given after Abraham. Well, if Jesus is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, he's also in the same way like a king like Melchizedek, right? Abraham is giving honor to Melchizedek, and Jesus is according to that order, right? So the law comes after. The law is subservient to Jesus Christ, all right? And he goes on, and so that's 8, 9, and 10 in a very condensed nutshell, all right? But um, there is a point that he makes that I want to just really stood out to me this year reading through it. And in chapter 9, he just makes a couple of references, but he talks about how the law can reform us, okay? The law of God, the law of the Old Testament can reform us. It can make us well-behaved. It can make us, you know, not commit adultery and murder and, and covet, and, and it, can, it can help us kind of hold in check, right? But it can't transform us. And that's really where he's going with what Jesus is capable of doing, right? The law can reform. Rules can reform. Um, you know, like if you're, I'm not a parent, right? But I've had a chance to watch a, a very significant amount of parenting go on in my life, right? And parents can set a lot of rules, right? And, if, if, and sometimes you can even watch. There are certain parents who just make a rule for everything. And what you wind up with is kids who are excellent, complete experts, at knowing exactly where the line is between, you know, it's not technically breaking the rule right now, right? I didn't actually disobey because you said maybe I should help, not I have to help, right? That was not a rule. The kids, kids I mean, myself included, right? All of us included. We become experts at working within the boundaries of the laws and the rules, right? Rules don't transform us. Now, there's a point in time at which you need a certain basic level, right? But really, as a parent, what do you want? You want your kids to just respond. You want your kids to help because it's the right thing to do. You want your kids to do the right thing because it's the right thing, right? And so that's where he's going is the law can reform us, but the law cannot transform us. That is something that only Jesus Christ can do. So that's chapters 8, 9, and 10. Chapter 11, as he's talking about this idea that the law can't transform us, he then gives us this whole kind of a who's who of people who responded to Christ, not necessarily through the law, but by faith, by receiving what Jesus said, by believing in the words of God, okay? And so these guys in this list, he's referencing pretty much every significant character in the Old Testament, 
Okay, he's going to talk about Abel, Abraham, Noah, Moses, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and he just goes on and on and on. And these, these guys are all made righteous in the eyes of God, but they're not made righteous because they were so excellent at following the law, right? This is sort of the who's who of like spiritual significance in the Old Testament. But if you read the Old Testament, these guys are messed up. This is a, this is a whacked out group of people, okay? These people are a perverted group of, of nuts, Right? I mean, they just, they just flat out are. But this, the author of Hebrews lists them as heroes of the faith. He says, my battery, no, it's there. He says, these are guys of whom the world was not worthy. He goes on and describes, he says, what more shall I say in verse 32? Because he's running out of time. He says, time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead back by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground." And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. He says, all these guys, we did all these things through faith, right? And all these things through faith. He doesn't say they did all these things through the law. They did all these things through the rules. They did all these things by keeping, you know, observing all, all the points, right? All 613 or whatever it is, right? They, he didn't say that. What's he say? It is by faith, right? And, and parenthetically, what is faith? What, is, what exactly is faith? And if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, you can say, well, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. To which you then sort of say, okay, so what is faith, right? Um, and this is just, whenever you come to, whenever you start talking about faith in the Bible, I think this is important because very often we assume faith is equal to confidence, right? If, we, if you were to describe a person and say, that is a person with intense faith, what are we describing? We're talking about the person who just nothing holds them back. They're all out for the Lord. They're just going full steam ahead. You know, they're evangelizing every person at every checkout that they've ever been to, right? That's a person with great faith. But that's not really the definition, Especially if we look in context of who is being listed here as a great person of faith. And so we think of faith as confidence, but really, biblically, great faith does not equal great confidence. Great faith equals great obedience. Faith is not equate to, I've got this. Faith equates to, I am willing to accept that the Lord is in charge enough that I can do what he's telling me to do. And I may very well die in the process. But that's completely beside the point, right? Faith is equal to obedience. And so he says, all these guys responded in faith. They believed the words of God, all right? Because Jesus Christ is who he said he was. So if we're taking all of that, 
Okay, so that's the book of Hebrews. That's the first 11 chapters. That's, you know, Jesus gives us rest. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is a priest and a king. Jesus can take us out of the law. Jesus can give us these examples of dozens of people throughout the Old Testament who responded to his words. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts off, therefore. All right? So we've, given, we've been given all this information, all this stuff, if you will, about who Jesus is, right? In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the rest of the book, we're going to, sort of, we're going to park here probably for the rest of the night. Um, the rest of the book is about how do we respond? What do you do with the fact that Jesus is the priest? Right? And, and you know, bear in mind, king and priest, what does that mean? We say that all the time. What does that mean? King is the person who rules over you, who's worthy of your adoration, right? who's in charge of your life. Priest is the person who brings you in the presence of God. Right? So Jesus is the ruler. He's fully worthy of all of our devotion. He's also the sole mediator. He is the one who brings us to God. He's the one who makes us righteous. Right? He's the one who removes our sins so that we can stand before God in holiness. Not just in less sinfulness. Right? We can stand in holiness. So he's the king and the priest. So what do we do with that? Right? So therefore, this guy says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And he's coming off of chapter 11. So he's saying, therefore, since, this is, since we've seen so many people go before us, and live out this faith, all right? And bear in mind, this is being written just shortly after the resurrection, not, not you know, within the first century. Um, we've had 2,000 more years of this, right? Our, our cloud of witnesses is significantly larger than it was at this time. I mean, we've just, we've had the testimonies of all the martyrs over the years, all the faithful men and women, right? We, we now have the stories of the St. Patrick's and, and Augustine and Polycarp and all these old heroes of the faith. And we have stories of modern people, right? People who have lived in our own lifetime. And we have the Jim Elliots and, and, you know, his four friends and the people who have lived and served and died for the Lord, right? Some of them were martyred. Some of them just lived out their lives faithfully. We have a great cloud of witnesses. So therefore... Let us. He says, let us. And this is interesting. And we talked about this, you know, I think it was last week in Colossians. Um, you know, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And this isn't, therefore, you have to. He's not saying, therefore, you are commanded to do this. He's saying, no, therefore, let this happen in your life. Therefore, respond. Okay? Because we've said this, we've been saying this really the whole year. Right? We've been emphasizing it a lot the last few weeks. But we're not talking about a list of rules. We just explained that Jesus takes us out of the law. So he's not giving us rules. He's giving us the opportunity to respond. So therefore, let us. Let us do what? Let us lay aside 
every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Some translations say, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. All right? Now, so let us lay aside what? Our weights and our sins. Now, sins is pretty straightforward, right? If you have sin in your life and you want to follow Jesus effectively, you're not going to be able to follow Jesus effectively unless you deal with the sin. Right? That's, that's pretty straightforward Christian understanding, right? But what about weights? Weights are a weird one because there's not all the time, sometimes there are, but there's not always a Bible verse that says you need to get rid of this weight in your life. What's a weight? Right? I mean, you think, what is, what is a weight? It's a heavy object. If you put a weight on, what does it do? It slows you down. Right? If you're running, you know, I, um, I remember listening to a pastor teach on this passage. He said, as far as I know, in the Olympics, there are no rules that say you're not allowed to wear a weight vest during competition. There's not a, I don't think it's on the rule books, right? Like if you're competing in the 100-meter dash, if you want to wear a weight vest, you're allowed to. But why would you? What's that going to do? It's going to slow you down, right? And, you know, all of us have sinned that we're perpetually moving through and, and working through. But also, we have weights. And weights are tricky because you can't pin them on universally, right? Weights are different because you can't say, this is always a weight for every Christian, right? But this is where it's important that we be responding. Let us, let us, let us what? Let us go to the Lord and say, God, I want to lay aside the weights in my life. So what are the weights in my life? If you don't know, the Lord knows. The Lord is very good at answering honest prayers, right? James, which we read, uh, if you're reading through the plan, we read it this morning. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom, and God will give you wisdom, right? It's fairly linear in his thought, right? If you lack it, ask for it, God will give it, okay? If you lack wisdom to understand what's a weight, ask God, and what will God do? He will show you. You will find the weights in your life. So therefore, because we're surrounded by all these witnesses, let us lay aside all these weights. And then what do we do with, what do we do? Once we've laid aside the weights, what do we do? We run, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He doesn't say the race that is set before somebody else, right? We're all given our own race. Now, our race all has the, the same end point, right? Is that, and that is that we cross the line into heaven. Our goal is to finish the race and hear Jesus Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. We are all pushing toward that goal. But we're all simultaneously given our own race, right? We are called to live our life. You are called to be the person God created you to be. And so in the same way that I can't stand up and say, this is always a weight, right? I can stand up and say, you know, very often these wind up being weights in people's lives, right? And and if you find this becoming a pattern, I'd be careful, right? Um, In the same way, I can say, you know, in running in your race, Here's some very basic principles that are effective. But I can't say, here's your race and here's how it needs to be run. And here's what you're supposed to do for a job and here's who you're supposed to marry and here's where you're supposed to live because it's your race. It's your responsibility to go to the Lord and understand what your race is supposed to look like. But whatever it is, you run it with endurance. You stick it out, right? If the Lord is calling you to something, you do it. You, you 
run, right? And you run effectively. You run with endurance. You run like a lightweight runner, right? This is distance running. Christianity is not sprinting. And very often we wish it was, right? Sprinting, you can just like kill yourself for 30 seconds and then you sit and pant and say that was fun. Distance running is a different thing, all right? We're distance running, right? Does anybody like distance running in this room? Just out of curiosity. One person, right? Distance running. If you want to feel like you're dying, you know, and ready to throw up for just hours on end, what a great thing to do, right? That's what we get to do as Christians. We get to distance run. We're running a marathon, all right? And so, but how do you run that with endurance? He doesn't say, you know, he doesn't say, you lay aside your weights, you run your race, and you finish your race. He says, no, no, you're going to lay aside your weights and your sins, and you're going to run with endurance. How? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Right? If you're going to run with endurance, you're only going to succeed if you see the prize. You only finish the race if you see the goal. And what is the goal? The goal is Jesus Christ. The goal is a deeper relationship with the Lord. The goal is fellowship with Christ. And bearing in mind that he's the author and the perfecter, or some translations say the author and the finisher. And that's important because a lot of times, uh, I think a lot of us wrestle with this. I know I have. uh, I wrestled with this a lot over the years. And that is that oftentimes we live as though Jesus is the author and the abandoner. Right? And, and, and we wouldn't quite say it because we're Christians. We know we're not supposed to say that sort of thing. But deep down, very often on a practical level, we live like atheists. Right? Jesus, sure, he saved me. I'm covered. I'm going to heaven. But if I want anything done, I better exercise my own strength. Right? Because why? Because I prayed once and God didn't answer my prayer. Because I've, I've you know, expected God to show up for me and he didn't. So if I want something done right, I better just get to work and take care of it. Right? We oftentimes live like Jesus started it, and now he's dropped the ball in our laps. And yes, Jesus does invite us to take responsibility. He says, let us lay aside the weights. But he's the author, and he's the finisher. Right? So if you want to start well, it's going to have to be by fixing your eyes on Jesus. If you want to finish well, it's going to have to be by fixing your eyes on Jesus. And then... He says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, for the joy given him, endured the cross. Now, we've talked about this before in the past. You know, the cross is, a lot of people would say, it's the single most painful method of execution ever invented by humanity. All right? That's a pretty strong statement because humans are pretty capable of thinking of cruelty, right? But the crucifixion stands as the pinnacle of, of the means of torturing another human being, right? And Jesus endured that for the joy. What was the joy? It was fellowship with us, right? With a collective group of losers and bums, right? And, and for that joy, right, Jesus couldn't wait for that. He was so excited about that opportunity that he went through the cross. And he despised the shame, right? 
I mean, Jesus endured, and we can't even fully understand it. He endured the physical torment of the crucifixion. He somehow also endured the spiritual torment in a way that nobody ever is going to understand because somehow he paid for all of our sins in that moment on the cross, right? And you know what he said? In essence, right? He, I mean, it was, and I'm not making light of it, but in some senses, Jesus said, what the heck? Right? Because he despised the shame. He said, this is all passing. I can, I'm okay with all of this because there's joy coming on the other side of this. Doesn't mean the crucifixion was fun. Doesn't mean he exercised, you know, supernatural ability to kill the pain. No, he took it all very, in a very real sense. But he despised it. He despised the shame of it for the joy set before him. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we run our race with endurance. We lay aside our weights. We lay aside our sins. And we look at Jesus, who's the finisher. The finisher of our race is seated at the throne of God. And in a very cool sort of way, it's like he's already finished our race. Right? And we see, you know, he's, he's seated. He's sitting down. It's like, yeah, it's cool. They're coming. I've got, you know, it's, he doesn't have to do this whole, like, you know, he's, he's not working up in a, in a frenzy, like, you know, it's, you know, fourth down and, uh, you know, fourth quarter and then 20 seconds left in the game and, oh my gosh, it's tied. Who's going to win? No, he knows. He's got the answer, right? He's like, yeah, I can chill. I know who wins. It's me, right? Um, and then just verse three, it says, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So just kind of the final thought is, you know what? As you're running that race and you, find, you face the obstacles and you face the weights and all those things, just remember that, you know, graciously, your life is never going to be as hard as Jesus's was, right? It's just, it's just not. And, I, and I'm not, that's not diminishing the reality of a hard life because life is hard, Right? Life is very hard. And, you know, unfair things happen. And there is, there is real cruelty in this world. There is real evil in this world, right? People do get hurt. And I'm not denying any of that. But in the same vein, none of that renders us incapable of running our race. None of that renders us, in, none of that renders Jesus incapable of finishing our race, right? So we can take. All of Hebrews. Hebrews is, you know, it's an exciting, dense book, right? We've been saying that. But the sum total of Hebrews is, after all of these things, keep your eyes on Jesus, right? So it's a heavy book. There's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, it's intense. But in the same vein, what's the complete summary? If you need to, you know, what is Hebrews? Keep looking at Jesus. Right? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because he's the author and the finisher. And don't forget the finisher part. Right? So, that, that's Hebrews in a nutshell. Right? So, keep reading. We're going to wrap up next week. We're going to wrap up the Bible. Don't you know, finish it out well. Be excited about what's coming and be looking unto Jesus because he's in the end of the Bible. Right? It's exciting stuff. So, God, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you. God, we want to run well. We want to run with endurance. We want to be looking unto you. We pray that you would help us to 
to lay aside the sins in our life, God, but also to lay aside the weights, the things that are slowing us down or keeping us back. Please reveal those to our hearts. Help us to deal with them. I pray that you would be glorified in our lives, that we would recognize who you are and what you've done, that we would respond to it. We pray above all else that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that your name would be lifted high, and that you would just have your way with us all for your glory. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.